Lunch with Pippa Hudson. And now, Consumer Talk featuring Wendy Nola. Delighted to have Wendy with us in studio this afternoon. Uh, we'll touch on the grounding of Mango Airlines. We're going to take a closer look at some of the unexpected factors that can influence how much you pay for car insurance. And then we will share with you an update on what the CDC is saying in America around surface contamination being a factor or rather not much of a factor at all in COVID-19 transmission. So again, if you want to join those conversations, the number to dial is 021-446-0567. You can send an SMS to 3 31- or a voice note to 072-567-1567. Wendy, we've spoken several times already this year about poor communication by Mango, but a shocking communication fail after the airline had its wings clipped uh, this morning. Yes, um, (laughs) you could say that. They were forced to cancel all flights from today because, simply put, the airline has run out of money. It's run out of runway. It's had in AXA, um, Airports Company of South Africa, um, issued a statement saying that it will not process any Mango flights at any of its airports because the low-cost carrier has again failed to pay its overdue bills. They put out a, a, a notice about that while I was driving into the studio saying that we appreciate the continued efforts but and we're sorry about the passengers basically, I'm paraphrasing, but we yeah. can't we can't continue But we can't this carry anymore. on waiting for a payment that yeah. is coming. Yeah. So the thing is though, nobody from the airline bothered to tell its customers uh, who arrived at airports today already to find their kiosks unmanned and the offices closed. So suitcases packed, tickets in hand, arriving at the airport and nowhere to go. I mean, that is appalling even by their previously poor standards of of customer customer communication. There was a notice that went out. I have been unable to ascertain exactly how, certainly not on Twitter. They haven't been issuing anything on Twitter for for a while. It just said, Dear guests, Mango Airlines would like to apologize for this morning's flight interruptions and delays. There's a euphemism there, if (laughs) ever there was. We're currently working on a solution and we'll be back at the counters and hope to clear the delays as soon as possible. We apologize for the inconvenience cause. I mean, that will go down as corporate speak, you know, yeah. the most classic example, because what's actually happened is um, the, the creditors, except being one, yeah. and, and importantly, the companies that lease them their airlines, have said, because this promise of money has been coming from um, uh, Department, Department of Public, Public Enterprises. Enterprises, was going to be October last year, then they pushed it out to by end of April, and now they've said by the end of June, or by June, um, and uh, no, it's so then, so, so the acting CEO told staff in a memo that's been leaked and widely shared online that um, they uh, they would unfortunately because of the the um, aircraft leases uh, lessors saying you know we we done no more end of April it's done they were going to cease trading by the first of April which they did not first release to, sorry first yeah. of May which they did not tell their the passengers public, yeah. who had tickets in hand. Um, and then today's thing was a surprise, and it was an act, the AXA coming in and saying no. We're not actually, waiting even that we're long. Not even, yeah. We're not prepared to wait until then. So, unfortunately, as you know, schools, government, state schools on on holiday. Um, the people, there's a tremendous. It's one of the you know, it's peak time, and um, so the, the the impact on people is 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 huge. huge. I mean, there as must be families is, stuck, Wendy, who are wondering how they're going to get home. Um, for example, a K- Kenton's just emailed me to say three of us are booked to fly with Mango to Durban tomorrow because we have a wedding oh, to attend no. this weekend. We were combining it with a holiday. We've got accommodation booked, a rental car from tomorrow evening. 
we don't know what is going to happen. We're hoping they will fly tomorrow. No, that's not going to no, happen, gonna is happen. it? No. No, it's not going to happen. If well, it doesn't happen… Unlikely, so yeah. not. As journalists, we should be measured, I suppose. It's unlikely that they're going to come up because they have to pay extra info. Uh, and until then, you know, and then they've also got the, the you know, the, the aircraft, the aircraft lessons. Lessons. Said, yeah. you know, unless you pay us by the end of April, you, you haven't got planes to fly. So it does not look likely. Okay, so Kenton's question is, will we get our money back? Which is the big question a lot of people are asking. Before you answer it, maybe let's hear another query from a listener who's been affected. I believe Keith has left us a voice note uh, who is also directly affected uh, by the grounding of Mango. If anybody else wants to join this part of the conversation, uh, 021-446-0567, let us know how you've been impacted uh, or pop through a voice note to 072-567-1567. Hi, Pepe. This is Keith. Uh, I normally call from Riyadh, but I'm home for two weeks. We have... Just by coincidence, 10 flights with Mango that are affected. My kids are coming from Pretoria to visit us for the weekend. Oy. Return on Mango. We're flying yeah. to Zanzibar next week on Mango, including George to Joburg. And I have another flight from Mango booked for later in the year. So we've really been caught. And not once have we had a single piece of communication from Mango. Oy. Uh, and I, I wish I could say I was surprised, but no, I'm not. But, so, Wendy, Keith, Kenton, um, okay, so A, it's very unlikely that they will be able to take any of those flights, certainly within the next no. day or two. So what do they do? They need to either cancel their plans or, or book somewhere else. And that is the brutal truth. And I hate hearing myself saying that because if I was one of those affected, I would be mad as hell. And yeah. I don't know that I'd have the money. Exactly. Frankly, that's the thing. You can't re-book. always afford to buy a second yes. ticket. Yeah. Um, I just was sharing you off air. Right now, I got a, an email from somebody who's um, a couple. They're expecting their first child at the end of the year, and this was, you know, they much look forward to a big holiday. They're going to Zanzibar. It cost them forty thousand k, a thousand forty thousand rand in total. Um, and they flew to Joburg and were supposed to fly to Zanzibar the next day. I think it was the twenty fifth, and the night before, ten o'clock, half past ten at night before their early early flight the next morning, they were told, "Don't fly to Zanzibar because we can't bring you back," oh. and the options weren't. Um, palatable and they've said they've been you know very little communication as well as you say so yeah there is the chargeback option okay um and actually i first learned about chargeback and started telling people about it when it was either velvet sky or um one time one, time, one of those yes. ones that collapsed around yes. 20 about 10 years ago actually and yeah. south africans didn't really know about chargeback it was being kept quite quiet so if you book something goods or services with a credit card you go to the bank that issued your card and to simplify the process they go to the supplier's bank and between them get your money back so um you have to prove that you didn't get it and there's a sort of gray area with them saying we we you know we're going to be back soon and whether you know will they get the money to pay will they not so the banks might be a bit iffy about it but the problem is to try first thing to try that if they go into business rescue as is expected as the the mothership um, SAA did Mm. then the options start um, reducing even more when it comes to refunds I believe uh, the spokesman who has been ignoring my requests all morning on whatsapp and email has said that the normal refund process will so, so Benediction was on, Benediction Zubani was on the midday report and uh, apparently the feedback I got from the producer was when asked about this said their refund policy will kick in. In the meantime, you need to call the call centre. Well, apparently the call centre lines no. are absolutely logged, as you can imagine. So that's not much help at all um, at this point. So Kenton, if you still want to take that trip 
if you can book a flight with another airline to get you to Durban and then fight the fight to get a refund after on that. the Mango flight afterwards. Keith that is, is a much bigger problem. That's a lot Your, of money. Uh, ten flights and Zanzibar, as you've Zanzibar is a said, big thing a because it was the best one. way to get to Zanzibar. Mango pretty much. Owns so it's not that. like there's a huge array of alternatives Mm-mm. to get you home. If, no, if, in um, fact, in the case of this young couple, it was going to cost them to get to make. Because if they flew to Zanzibar, which they could on their mango ticket, getting back was a problem. And it was going to cost them 10,000 rand each Oy. to make alternative plans to get back to Cape Town or, or Joburg and then Cape Town. So, um, no, it's 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 a real mess, Pippa, and my heart mm. goes out to all those who are affected. I would suggest you phone your bank that issued your credit card and find out each bank has a different window period Um uh, a different sort of cutoff. Some yeah. as um, as little as thirty days. Other banks, it's up to ninety days. So find out what that period is, so that you know what your options are. You might want to wait and see what happens with Mango. Then the, the small chance that they get flying again, and your ticket then you can use. But don't let that window close. That chargeback window close. Um, you know, while you wait. While you yeah. wait. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, airports, I'm just checking the airports company statement this morning, Wendy, and they too are directing customers straight to Mango Airlines uh, call center. The customer care center number is 86 uh, We gather that line is well, chock-a-block at the uh, moment. I know this is consumer talk and I'm all for protecting consumers, but um, a word as well to the staff who must be in a world of pain. Yeah. And these are the people who are having to man the call center and deal with a lot of anger and frustration I'm quite sure yeah. understandably so a little thought for them as well this is not not their best time absolutely okay the other option is to send an email to inquiries at flymango.com but again how you know nobody who's communicated with us so far has uh, has had any kind of feedback or, or response Look, mango's yeah. uh, communication was not their greatest strength, strength to start um, with, yeah. and uh, so it's not going to be great now for the last flight I caught actually back from Durban not um, I don't know, three, two, three weeks, weeks ago. ago yeah. It was on Mango and very pleasant and on time it was too. So, Okay, know. so watch the space. If anybody else is directly affected, has had any more luck than the previous uh, case studies we've mentioned in terms of getting uh, feedback, etc., you are very welcome to share that with us with a voice note to 0725671567 or pop us a call on 0214460567. Kenton, Keith, others, I really hope that you are able to continue in some way, shape or form with the holidays that you were all looking forward to. That's the most horrible thing, Wendy, the is the timing flying. of it. Yes. Um, and I'm sure there must be families who flew to Durban for the holidays and are now yeah. wondering how they're going to get home. Well, I'm hoping the other airlines the are, are upping their capacity because these are hundreds so. and hundreds of people, of tickets affected. So yeah. I'm sure if I, if I spoke to Kirby Gordon right now, that's probably exactly what they're doing. But again, in a big hurry. I don't know. Lift is going to have to give lots of people and a lift yes. home. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, happy to go back to this issue later in the show. If you've got comment or additional questions that haven't been covered by the limited information we do have at our disposal at this point. For now, we're going to move on to talking insurance. And then after the 2.30 news headlines, we'll touch on the COVID surface contamination issue. Already a lot of people asking questions around that, Wendy. So we will get to that. First, though, we want to talk a little bit about some of the strange things things that might impact your car insurance premiums. And the source of this conversation is our listener, Veronica, who mailed us a little while ago to say the following. I was horrified to be told by First for Women that as an unmarried woman, I am a higher risk than a married woman for car insurance and that this would affect my premium. 
When I queried the logic, I was told it is an industry norm. Can Wendy confirm whether that is in fact the case or not? And Wendy, it led us down a bit mm-hmm. of a rabbit hole of some of the curious things that actually do impact your insurance premiums, this being one of them. Indeed. So it, it turns out that your marital status does indeed have a bearing on, on the car insurance premium you pay. I sent an email to Telesure, which owns the First for Women brand and, and several others, um, and saying, you know, when I questioned the reasoning behind this some years ago, I was told, and I can't remember by whom in the industry, that married people are less likely to be out on the town driving at times <laughs> when most accidents happen, something along those lines. I said, but I, to tell you, sure, I would really like to get the official actuarial reason for unmarried people paying higher premiums based on their statistically higher risk. And does that apply to drivers of all ages or are the spinsters and divorcees considered to be less likely to be party animals once they hit 50? <laughs> 50 or 60. It's quite an interesting intersection of risk. Yes. Okay, so what response did you okay. get? Okay, so the response I got from Sunit van Weghardt, um, who heads up First for Women, was um, perhaps predictably quite muted. <laughs> she said, this is not about gender, it's about risk, regardless of whether someone is male or female, premiums are impacted by marital status, and this is common among most insurers. Marital status, however... There's only one factor taken into account in assessing risk. Everyone's risk is rated individually and factors such as age, vehicle use, that's where COVID comes in with the work Mm. from home is, risk address and insurance history have a far greater impact in the assessment of risk and premium charged than whether you're married or not. When it comes to age, statistically driving risk reduces with age and older drivers have fewer accidents than young or new drivers. Which makes sense. Uh, that you can understand. Um, it was the marital status thing that I think most people would be surprised by. And by, a couple, yes. One or two other little factors as well. Okay, well, we have a guest uh, with us on the line to comment a little bit about how these factors work for and against us when it comes to car premiums. First for women are not alone in this, by the way. Veronica herself oh, went no. and did some calls and she mailed me to say both Old Mutual and My Way also came back confirming that they apply the similar risk it. profiles. It is an industry-wide practice, so it's not a case of singling out First for Women. They just happen to have been the insurer uh, of the particular case study. On the line is Christelle Coleman, who is MD and founder of Elite Risk Acceptance, which is part of Old Mutual Insure. And Christelle, it's always lovely to have you on the show. It's been a while since I spoke to you. Welcome back. Thank you, Pippa. Thanks for having me on. So at some point, uh, the perceived lower risk associated with getting older um, will cancel out the higher risk of of not being married in this particular case. It's it's a curious (laughs) one. Can you articulate a little bit what's going on? I'm very pleased that I can that I can add some comments here. So first of all, I just want to say that these rating factors are international rating factors. Okay. If you drive a car in the U.S., they will also look at your age, your marital status, the color of your vehicle, you know, the number of years you've had your driver's license. But it's important to remember what, that when we have these complex rating structures, some of these rating factors, like, for instance, marital status, it has a very little influence on the outcome of the premium. And the reason why marital status is used is often we find when people get divorced at a certain age, they are back on the roads, possibly, you know, partying, maybe drinking a little bit, having more accidents. And these are all actuarial findings. It's taking big data sets and seeing when we change this, this is how the risk profile changes. Mm-hmm. So, so it is very common to use marital status, but but fortunately for divorced women, uh, the the rating factor around gender is very positive. Women, you know, female drivers get discounts because we are statistically less. Um, there's a bit lower chance that we will make a severe accident. So, the two kind of cancels each other out. Should. 
So in that's theory, interesting. Yes. So a, a woman is deemed by default, uh, uh, so, so two identical profiles, same age, same marital uh-huh. status, same car, number of years driving. If one is a man and one is a woman, the woman is deemed the lower risk. Yes, and again, it's international um, trends. Uh, we find, you know, we have found that men make more frequent severe accidents. So they take more risk on the road. They drive faster. They're more aggressive. Where women tend to be a little bit more, you know, re- responsive, uh, step back, don't drive so fast, don't swear so much. It's, you can just think about it in a natural way. It's just the way it plays out on the roads and as if well. And you, if you spend any time on the roads, Christelle, you, uh, you will, it's, it's very easy to observe. I think. Yes, and also what they also say is that often women have, um, they are mothers, they've got children in the car with them, they tend to drive slower, they're more aware (laughs) of the risk because they are worried about precious cargo. So all those things play into it. But but the biggest factor really is your claims record, how long you've had your driver's license for, so not age so much, but how long you've had your driver's license for, where you live. And, um, of course, the value of your car and how big the engine is. Those are the things that make up the biggest pot, mm-hmm. portion of the premium pot. So if you want to buy your child a car, don't buy an expensive car with a big engine because you will pay much more on that insurance premium than an older car with a smaller engine. I, remember, I remember reading a blog of yours or something where you traded your your quite fancy yes. executive car for a, was it a Fiat 500 second hand yes. and how much you <laughs> saved a month. That was quite impressive. Yeah, and you save a hell of a lot on your insurance premium as well because we take the size of the engine into account. We take the, the make of the vehicle into account because it's all about how much will it cost to repair that car. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, so, so don't worry too much about these other strange rating factors Worry about your claims record, you know, and make sure that you don't spend huge amounts on these expensive cars because you will pay a lot more insurance. Crystal, as a matter of interest, the, the, the color of the car, that's a yes. curiosity to me. Is it statistically <laughs> shown that certain color yes. cars are more likely to be involved in accidents? Is it to do with yes. their visibility on the road? No, no, no. It's very interesting. It's got to do with risk again. So, you know, if you go to Europe, you see that most people drive black cars. Mm-hmm. So their, their black cars are our white cars. Yeah. So in South Africa, if you drive a black GTI, think about that. <laughs> it's a high risk. It's normally a car that you see driving fast, you know, with black windows, and it's you know, it's a it's a it's a car that would would be deemed to be more risky. Where a white car is typically safer. so it's got to do with a with a yeah, it's safer driver. What about the kind of person? Screaming yes. orange or neon green. Sorry to cut in there. <laughs> so, so, no, the two, the two um, um, colors that, that tend to attract a little bit higher um, rates are the black and red cars because, you know, a red car is also often a racy car. So what we as South Africans buy. And then, you, you know, if you buy a white car, it's normally safer and, and a lower risk profile. So, so that's why I said a white, if you think about, a, 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 say, a red GTI versus a, white Toyota Corolla. You, you can just imagine the one is more risky than the other and it's as simple as that. That's what we found. Oh, love it. My goodness. I, I, can, I, can I ask one more thing Please before do. we go to headlines? Yes. It's just occurred to me as we're speaking, as you were talking about women statistically you know, being lower risk, and I can bind to that. But there's something that I've noticed that's one of it's a huge bugbear of mine, and I hate to say it, and I'm I'm just it's just my observation. It might not be true statistically, yeah. but women seem to WhatsApp while driving more than men. I wonder if the actuary, actuaries um, sort of are starting to factor that. that in. 
or look you know, at that. everything gets factored into it. So, so we look at the outcomes. So we look at, you know, these numbers of accidents, gender, ages, and then the actuaries analyze that. And they realize that if you're a 36-year-old woman, you would be a 10% lower risk than a 36-year-old male. And whatever plays into that, we look at the outcome. Okay, that's So even worked with all of that, it's yeah. all about the fact that women are a lot more defensive and, and take less risk on the roads than men. And, and, you know, even if they are texting, um, still with that, uh, women tend to make fewer, less severe accidents. So it's not that we're better drivers. I'm not saying women are better drivers than men, but we tend to make fewer, less severe accidents. And that plays into the race. That's what costs the insurers, and they don't want that. Yeah. So it makes sense. Fascinating. Fascinating. Christelle, thank you so much. Uh, Christelle Coleman, MD and founder of Elite Risk Acceptance, who are part of the old Mutual Insure Group. Lovely to have you with us on the show. Just to wrap the insurance topic, yeah, a comment on the WhatsApp line, Wendy, somebody who's always assumed that the difference with the colour issue being a factor of how much more it costs to repair if the paint is not white paint. Um, I assumed it, as you did, it was yeah. visibility. It's, I, I, there's, I've been dealing with these these cases for so many years and I must admit the black and red high risk, I, I just, that had passed me by. Oh. So I'm very indebted to Christelle, to Christelle and I'm going to spread the word on my other platforms as well. Well, I'm smiling because it must be getting boring as I get older, Wendy, because I went from driving a black car to driving a red car to not driving <laughs> a white one. So. I had a black car once too and I decided I would never do that again just because the, it showed the, the dirt so much. Oh, and I the heat. the heat being the, the, and the, the heat, key factor, yes. which is, I guess, it would explain a lot about why it's so popular in Europe for the converse True. reason. Okay, um, so just before we leave the insurance thing, um, uh, well, two things. Colleen WhatsApping to say, I'm gutted as an over 70-year-old I wanted to buy a red car this year. <laughs> After the conversation I've just heard, I think I will stick to silver. Okay. I think I think the over seventy thing will um, is we'll the stronger out, factor. Yeah. So maybe if, if you really have your heart set on a, a black, what is it, black or red, red, red car. I would get uh, two different quotes and just see if it's just a marginal increase. Then go ahead and it get your like red car. It sounds like it might be a factor of a couple of rands. Yes, a month. the, the yeah. fact that you're over seventy is really going to count for more than the difference between uh, silver and red. Because you've got to wear a purple hat in the red <laughs> car, Connie, for the record. Okay, one very important thing that we mustn't uh, leave this conversation without mentioning, and that is married versus single people's perceived risk and how this impacts you if you've got divorced, Wendy. The risk of uh, if you get separated or divorced from somebody, a lot of people make the decision to just leave them on the policy and um, for the sake of simplicity, but it's, it can be quite a risk. Yes, especially if it's fairly amicable, yeah. you know. Um, but the risk is that um, if that person, your ex, um, has a run of, of claims or um, is, is even, even forbid, been found to have falsified or padded a claim mm-hmm. and they're then labeled as a moral risk, it impacts on you. And um, number one, your claims history and then the, you know the, what you'll be paying in premiums and everything else. And um, I, this was something that um, Christelle shared with me off air. We didn't get time to get to it, but... It reminded me very recently, in the last month, five weeks, I covered a case, actually dealt, chatted to Bruce with us on The Money Show, where a Cape Town woman did just that. She kept her ex on her policy, and he had several claims, quite hefty ones, in yeah. a short space of time. She had one um, as well, but it led her to being deemed a massive risk and being offloaded by her insurer, which they okay. were entitled to do. So, again, a very solid warning, and one which I've never given before, so... 
experience. Okay, thank so you very no much, matter how Christelle amicable Coleman. and how simple it might appear on paper, you really that you have your, even lives. if you pay for it for whatever reason, if that's part yeah. of your agreement, make sure it's a separate policy in their name, so yeah. that you are separate. And it won't affect the, the premium because risk is risk; they will be analysed on the on the risk profile as an individual anyway. Okay, but just make sure it's a separate policy. Thanks for that warning, Wendy. Okay, we're going to take a very short break, and then we'll come back with the update from the uh, Centers for Disease Control in the states around surface contaminants and COVID nineteen. Cape Talk. Consumer Talk. Call now on 021-446-0567. Right. Uh, one more important piece of news to talk about today, and that is a very uh, interesting and quite dramatic change of the official position of uh, America's Centers for Disease Control around the risk of COVID-19 contamination on surfaces. Um if you are one of the many who has been frantically cleaning desktops and defogging rooms, etc., for over a year now, you're going to want to pay very careful attention, Wendy, because this is a real about turn. It is an about turn, Pippa. Um, it turns out that all the time and money that we've been spending on routinely, and the key word there is routinely, because obviously if there's been a COVID case, um, that kind of a professional deep clean sanitization needs to happen. But we're talking about the routine things that have been sold by the companies, who many of whom have jumped onto this bandwagon in the last year yeah um have been selling you know um, exploiting people's fears and perhaps and also it didn't help that cds in in the beginning of this pandemic it was felt by the scientists that World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control that it was the biggest danger we faced. I mean, there was obviously the aerosols, the very tiny ones that we expel when we speak Speak and laugh and sneeze and all that. Um, But then the bigger ones fell onto surfaces and they they did these lab tests which showed and and I remember reporting on it because it was a trusted source that these um, particles um, remained on surfaces wood, stainless steel four days on paper three to seven days on stainless steel up to four days on wood, so those are our desks and, and yep. whatever. It was frightening. So obviously that um, lit, uh, gave rise to what was called the hygiene theatre. Um, and we're very much um, impressed and, 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 and persuaded by by people coming in hazmat suits, um, spraying and fogging and like it looks, you know, blitzing everything. We just, we, I was told by a Rudderport uh, school principal last week that every time there was a case uh, a COVID case in the school, the parents used the word fogging. They, they wanted everything fogged because that to them gave them peace of mind that there was not a surface, not a bit of a surface anywhere in the school that um, could possibly still can, contain Have a, a lingering cr- trace. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's people's sort of fears were driving this. Anyway, and as of course, now... Sorry, the exploitation that came with it. So 400 million rand spent by the Gauteng Education Department. And about half of that in the Western Cape, Cape as well. Yeah, and forget. people charging, you know, 30 million rand uh, uh, contracts for what should have been a... Couple of hundred thousand yes. jobs. So yeah, yeah. So this it, it, it's, it's, it's horrendous on a rather large scale, Pippa. So the upshot is that the CDC is is now come out this month to say what scientists, it must be said, have been telling them for many months since last year, is that the risk of catching the coronavirus from surfaces is extremely low, as low as one in ten thousand contacts. So. Um, <laughs> As the as scientist, what is his name, uh, Goldman? Dr. Uh, Manuel Goldman. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Manuel Goldman, he issued a paper which was published in The Lancet um, called Exaggerated Risk of Transmission of COVID-19 from formats, which is a fancy word for surfaces. Um, they've never Those findings have been available for peer review for nine months. Nothing's happened. He told 
there's a video on YouTube, which is only about 40 seconds long. He said it would take, the lab results didn't replicate what happens in the real world. He said it would take 100 people coughing on the same piece of paper for that to present any risk. Um, there are some scientists that don't think there's any evidence for anyone getting COVID from surface. That It's that negligible. Okay, so it's a substantial change of position from where we were a year ago when the CDC was saying this is something to be concerned about. So let's talk about how that turnaround happened and and, and just understand a little bit more about the difference in what was happening in those lab conditions initially versus what actually happens in real life. And with us on the line is somebody who has actually been making this point for several months herself um, um, because of research into similar findings in their case uh, around the risk of food contamination and COVID. Um, It's a welcome back again to this guest, Professor. Lucia Analik, a food safety expert, a Pretoria-based microbiologist. And Lucia, it's always lovely to have you with us on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much, Pippa. And it's lovely to be with you again and, of course, with Wendy. You must feel quite vindicated to hear the CDC saying it officially because you and, and colleagues have been saying for several months that the, the, the sort of contamination surface effect was being over-exaggerated. Yes, well, absolutely. You know, um, it's also very difficult sometimes, I think, for uh you know, consumers to understand all the science and how to interpret all of the science. So we do rely on organizations such as the CDC, etc., these sort of um, public health authorities that can actually put things into perspective and put out the right guidance. So this has really been a, a great, a great move. Lucia, can you tell us a little bit more about the the position paper you put out with some colleagues in September, specifically looking at the question of of food as a possible contamination point? Yes, with pleasure. So I've given a number of webinars, and people can actually find those recordings on my website, uh, where I actually delve into that in a lot of detail. Um, So in terms of food and and food packaging as such, let's look at food first. We do know that the virus is highly unlikely to be uh, absorbed through the gut. And the reasons are many. Even if people cough on food, um, the amount of virus that is probably going to land on the food has been shown to be very, very small. And then you ingest the food, you've got acid in your stomach, so the virus cannot survive under those very acidic conditions. Mm -hmm. So there's very, very little likelihood that it will actually survive the whole process of digestion and get absorbed into your body from the digestive tract, moving all the way up into the respiratory system. It just doesn't work that way. It works the other way around. So what we believe is that the virus gets into the respiratory system first and then from there uh, it can actually migrate to other parts of the body and causes diarrhea when it lands up in the digestive system. But migration occurs from the respiratory system to other parts of the body. Okay. So I think the issue now is, I mean, there was an article in the New York Times that was headlined something like, is this going to be the end of the era of the uh, hygiene theater? Um, I haven't certainly read much about this locally. I'm trying to do my bit to spread the word um, because there's an awful lot of exploitation, as Pippa and I were saying a few minutes ago, with these companies um, telling people, schools, businesses, um, anywhere where people congregate, that you know they have a duty to do routine um, electrostatic spraying, fogging, etc. Whereas the science is now saying that if someone has been COVID positive, has been in a particular space for 
within the last day, that area should be professionally cleaned and disinfected. But, you know, that fogging, fumigation and all the rest, this is now the CDC guideline, is not recommended as a primary method of disinfection. Do you think locally, because this is very much, you know, a, a, a big industry now, do you think the, the message is going to get through to the populace sufficiently for them to say, actually, I don't want, you know, we're not, we are forthwith ending our contract or our business with you. If we have a case, we'll call you in, but this mm. r- routine stuff is not happening anymore. Well, it's going to be a very, very difficult process because uh, unless government gets onto, um, onto the bandwagon here, it's very, very important that we get our government to also support this kind of guidance because once that's available on our government websites, people will take more notice. Mm-hmm. What is also terribly, terribly important are organizations like the, uh, the National Institute of Occupational Health. Uh, this organization has been presenting numerous webinars due throughout the COVID uh, pandemic. And, and some of those topics have been absolutely very, very good, absolutely excellent. And we need that kind of organization to also start uh, talking this kind of language because they are currently speaking about deep cleaning and sanitizing, etc. So that is still their message. They also need to come to the party and change that message so that consumers can start gaining confidence in the messages that are then being put out there. So, yeah, so we need to update that advice from last year. What I discovered in researching this issue is um, that the new message now from the CDC is that simple soap and water, in addition to hand washing and, of course, mask wearing, given that they've come out and said this is a disease you get from breathing, not from touching, um, that is enough to keep surface transmission low. And the new buzzword now, which makes a lot of sense, is ventilation. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I mean, it doesn't have the same sort of... Um, emotive hazmat suit splitzing connotation to it, but it's a lot more effective and, and a lot cheaper to introduce, um, you know, in a, in a very wide scale. Could you talk to us a little bit about ventilation and, and um, how it would play out for, you know, in, in your normal day-to-day situations? Absolutely. Um, fresh air, open windows, open doors. Whenever you're in a room with other people, never mind the fact that you still have your mask on and hopefully keeping the social distancing. Um, If there are any aerosols that are uh, developed through the process of speaking, um, even if somebody has to cough, for example, in a room, it is so important to keep open windows so that you have this fresh air flow constantly. We also know that the recirculation of air in a closed room with an aircon that doesn't bring in fresh air from the outside. In other words, it's only recirculating old air which might be contaminated can actually be problematic. There was a a, a work done in China on this and it's very clear. So really and truly keeping uh, windows and doors open as much as possible uh, is very, very useful to try to, to, to prevent the transmission from person to person through aerosols. Okay. 
Lucia, I wonder if you want to respond to this message in from one of our listeners, Cynthia, who um, is asking us please to share the source of um, uh, the conversation and this new this new comment on the surface viral danger. And um, the source being uh, America's CDC, Cynthia. If you go to their website or Google CDC surface contamination, you'll find any one of a number of, of articles referencing um, the press briefing we're talking about. But her comment is this: I have to sanitize all surfaces and the floor of the hall I use for an exercise class. It's time-consuming as well as adding to running costs, and I would love uh, to be able to to ditch it if it is not necessary. Um, what are your thoughts on that kind of scenario? Well, it depends on how many people go through there, and if she is quite sure that the people that come in to those exercise classes are not carrying the virus, even though they may be asymptomatic. So that is usually the, the issue there. Um, but honestly, to, to constantly clean, uh, disinfect specifically, I wouldn't go that far any longer. Cleaning, absolutely. Cleaning surfaces with a proper detergent and water is incredibly useful. The moment she identifies that somebody might have been actually carrying the virus, then, of course, all the other protocols have to occur. Um, so it's really important that we understand that all of this is outside of a hospital environment where you know you have positive individuals and there is virus potentially in the air. We're talking to Professor Lucia Annelich um, uh, about this latest um, uh, announcement by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in America. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, uh, Cynthia, if you want to read up on it, you will find uh, the, the findings widely in circulation, including the comment that the risk is perceived as being uh, it was one in 10,000 10, chance that you will actually pick it up from a surface transmission. Lucia, you mentioned um, the low risk with food. Uh, somebody's asking, what about food packaging? Mm, very good, uh, very good question because I actually wanted to come to that. So I'm so pleased someone is asking. Well, it's really interesting. The Chinese have done a lot of work on this. Now, there are two issues here. The one is that they have tested 2.98 million samples of food packaging and they only found 22 samples out of 2.98 million positive. Now, when I say positive, I'm saying they found RNA. Now, RNA is the nucleic acid that is inside the virus, which is then covered by the protein coat of the virus, and that's covered again by this fatty layer. Now, that is very important because that means that the virus has actually been disrupted and it has released the RNA, and that is what's being detected. Now, RNA does not translate automatically into infectious virus Mm. because you need the intact virus to actually attach to your cells with those protein spikes. Without that, the virus is useless. So if you're picking up RNA, it does not mean that you actually have intact virus. So that's a very, very important distinction to make. And this is what the Chinese detected. They detected 22 samples positive for RNA. Now, if you work out the percentage, Mm. it's a 0.00073% positive rate. Now, I mean, that is absolutely negligible in terms of a microbiological risk. So food packaging, we do not regard as a way of transmitting the virus.
What about, um, uh, I'm thinking the, the ramifications for restaurants, Lucia. I mean, a lot of the restaurants spending a lot of money on packaging cutlery, for example, uh, to make customers feel uh, more reassured. It, necessary or, or no longer necessary, in your opinion? Absolutely not necessary. I was really pleased to see a restaurant that I've been to uh, last year in August that provided uh, a cutlery in a plastic, uh, cu- covered plastic with staples. And I just looked at this lot thinking, how much plastic are we not adding to the environment when, in fact, it's not necessary? And so I'm really pleased to see that that restaurant had already done away with uh, covering each knife and fork and spoon in plastic. I was very pleased to see that. I'm wondering if hotel buffets, not that I do that much anymore, but I uh, traveled a bit towards the end of last year and um, the, the buffets were just gone, one of the highlights yeah. of staying over <laughs> in a hotel. Um, and you just had individual little plates served to you. I'm wondering um, if I should get hold of the hotel groups and see how this is going to impact on them and, and other businesses that have gone into, you know, really um, severe Sort of sanitation and at COVID huge cost. At huge at cost. At huge cost. One would think, Wendy, that organisations like FedASA, the Restaurants Association, etc., would be taking this research and and taking it to government and uh, to, to yeah, and saying look and yes, respond. Government needs to say something because there could be a lot of pushback from people who feel that companies are now slacking and putting them at risk. That is the knee jerk response. So this message, as as Lucia was saying, needs to be put out very strongly by all forms of government so that consumers can really start trusting it. Before we uh, say goodbye, uh, I think we've got time to squeeze in a voice note that's come in on a related topic. Let's have a listen. Hi, Pippa. This is such an interesting um, conversation about the virus on surfaces. So does this blow a hole in um, every single time you walk into a shop, your hands are sanitized um, into every single store because obviously everyone's worried about picking it up from surfaces or the food items that you touch or whatever. Um, so what does this say about shopping? Lucia, uh, would you like to respond? Absolutely. I think it makes good sense to be cautious in a public space where there are so many people moving in and out to still sanitize hands. But we are here talking about sanitizing surfaces and sanitizing, you know, the environment with fogging, etc., etc. That has been shown no longer to be necessary. But certainly, if you cannot wash your hands before you move into a store or you move out of a store, then by all means, have a spray of sanitizer just from a precautionary perspective. Okay. okay. And that would have to be changed by regulation because that's now legal, that the, the um, shops and all these uh, public places need to supply it and they need to supply it at a minimum of 70% alcohol. So exactly. That, yeah. To yeah. turn that big container ship around is going to take some time. But yeah, good, good um, point there, Lucia. This is about the routine um, sanitizing of, of surfaces. In yes, and if I may, there was a very good um, article in Nature as, as, mm-hmm. as recent as February this year where this individual is asking, COVID-19 rarely affects through surfaces. So why are we still deep cleaning? So there was another question raised. Yeah. And that is why, you know, what, what the CDC has now come out with is, is really vindicating what so many of us have been saying for some time and believing for some time. Lucia, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and helping to make sense of what can be very dense science and difficult for a layman to follow. You've done, in a way, done so in a way that really, I think, is crystal clear. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Pippa, and thank you, Wendy. Thanks, Professor Lucia Anelich. Uh, um, so we often speak to her on food safety specifically, but a Pretoria-based microbiologist and uh, very, very interesting. And, and, and as she said, Wendy, one hopes now that this message swells through. up and carries through to those who make uh, the, the regulations that, that dictate our behavior. Yeah, I think until that happens, I think we, we need, I think a school and a business and whatever to... to um, Allay the fears of their parents, pupils, customers, etc. Do need to point to a, a local South African government um, position paper. Yes, yeah. just otherwise there's, there's going to be too much pushback. Wendy, thank you. Oh, gosh, we've covered a lot of ground today, but all of it important and all of it very interesting. Thank you so much for three lots of research for this week. <laughs> uh, just a reminder that Wendy is with us every Wednesday, and if you would like to put a case her way, you can do so by emailing consumer at nola.co.za, spelled K-N-O-W-L-E-R, or contact her via her Facebook page, which is Wendy Nola Consumer.